well, as many of you know, our Cactus campus and then our Mountain Valley campus and then our venue across campus and our chapel right next door join us right now for our time in the Word. And as they are doing that, I'd like to do something collectively uh, as five congregations that are, are now gathering and meeting uh, that I think will be honoring to God and honoring to our church. And that is, and you'll see why I'm going to do this in just a second, but I want everybody in this room and then all of our campuses and venues, I want you to show your appreciation once again for the people that just led you in worship. So let's do that right now. Amen. You know, some of you might or might not know this. In fact, most of you probably don't, but you know, all the worship leaders at the other campuses and venues, and then Troy and his team here, uh, I mean, honestly, they're squeezing in these worship services this weekend and next week. The uh, Winter Wonder program that we've been doing is an all-consuming event. I, believe me, I, I, I exist behind the scenes here, and as I've observed and watched them, I mean, the amount of time and effort, prayer and energy that they put into Winter Wonder is I mean, just immense. And, you know, it pays off. I mean, the Lord uses it, and we're all uh, pleased and proud of it. But I, I'm very, very happy with the way that our worship leaders step up to the plate uh, during this season and, and continue to lead us in worship in times like we just had. So if you see them behind the scenes, uh, any of the worship leaders, uh, just tell them thanks and that you're praying for them, and then start praying for them. Because if you tell somebody you're praying for them, you better do so. And I think that would be a God-honoring thing. Uh, we're going to start a new series today. I think y'all are going to like it. And so let's bow and ask God's blessing upon it. Father, thank you for our gathered times of worship. Uh, we thank you, God, for the songs that we sing, uh, for the focus that we get in the midst of our busy and distracted weeks. We thank you for the fellowship that we have with each other. And Lord, we thank you now for time in your word. God, many of us are going to see over the next 40 minutes how relevant your word is to our lives, how applicable it is to our lives. And so, Lord, by the power of your spirit, I pray you help us to see this and to even usher in a, a renewed or a new understanding of Christmas, God, for many of us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So here's something that all of us have learned in life, and that is that sometimes one sentence can say it all right? One time, sometimes one sentence can seem to say it all. And the beauty of that is that we tend to remember these one sentence statements and we got them in our heads and hearts for the rest of our lives. Let me show you what I mean. I want you guys to finish these statements for me. Uh, give me liberty or give me death. Good. Let's try this one. To the victor goes the spoils. You guys are good. Uh, easy come, easy go. If you got all three of these wrong, you're going to get this next one. What goes up must come down. Yep. And then let's see how religious you are. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, these are easy ones. They're softballs. These are phrases that our culture uses all the time that in their isolation seem to say it all, and they're memorable phrases, and we all know them. There are plenty of one-sentence statements in this world that say it all, and we kind of like that. Jesus was really good at this. He was awesome at giving us one-sentence statements that seem to stick in our minds and our hearts. He was a master at this. Now think of all the sayings of Jesus that you know. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Love your enemies. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or how about this one? Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I mean, I could go on and on. Jesus was a master at giving us short one-sentence or two-sentence statements that are very meaningful, that seem to say it all in their isolation, and we remember them. And so what we're going to do here at Scottsdale Bible over the next few weeks as we head into Christmas, and I think this is going to be fun for us, is that we're going to look at, we're going to take a look at one verse from the Bible, one sentence only, but make no mistake, it's one sentence that is power-packed, it's profound, and it communicates to you and I the heart and soul of what Christmas is really about. Really what I want to do is park in front of one sentence in the Bible for four weeks leading all the way up to Christmas Sunday this year and do a deep dive in it so that we might fully understand what Christmas is all about. And so without any further introduction, here's the verse. It's found in Luke 2, verse 11. It's part of the original Christmas story. We'll talk about the context here in a minute, but let me read it for you. Follow along as I do. It says, for today... In the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let me repeat that. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And here's what we're going to do with this one verse over the next four weekends. We're going to take a detailed look, now don't miss this, at the four primary components of this verse, and we're going to park each week in front of one of these components and really flesh out what it's saying. So let me show you what these four components are. I put them in yellow here for today. That's component number one. In the city of David, there has been born for you. That's component number two. A savior, component number three, who is Christ the Lord. Man, you guys are going to love this. We're going to take a look over the next four weeks at what today means for you and I, what Jesus being born into this world, what theologians call the incarnation means for you and I. We're going to take a look in week three at what this idea of him being a savior is for all of us. And then if you come to to church on Christmas Day, the 25th, we're going to have one service here for all of our campuses in this room. And you're a loser if you don't come. If, If you come to church that day, Uh, We're going to take a look at what it means that Christ is the Lord. I I think you're going to love uh, this series that we're going to enter into. And this weekend, we're taking a look at the first of the four components, the idea of today. Today. Now, I want to begin by establishing the original context of this verse so that we might understand it rightly. I teach you guys all the time that if you read the Bible out of context, that's how you get in trouble. You have to read it within its historical, grammatical context in order to interpret it rightly. And as many of you might remember, this verse is part of the original birth narrative of Jesus. Let me refresh you on the story. Most of you know it. Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, are in Bethlehem, far away from their home in Nazareth. And there's no room for them in the inn. And so they have to bed down in a cave or a barns-like structure, and that's where Jesus is born. And while all this is happening, the Bible tells us that there were some shepherds in some nearby fields doing their shepherding thing. And Luke tells us that an angel of the Lord appeared to these shepherds. And it's right at this point that our one verse comes into play. 
Because the angel tells the shepherd that he has some good news for them that will be for all of humanity, and then he drops the bomb of Luke 2.11. He says, for today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And given the context of this passage that we just talked about here, obviously that word today that I put in yellow there literally means what? Today. I mean, that's the simple context of this passage. He's saying this night, this very moment, there has been born in the city of Bethlehem a, a Savior, Christ. And then as we all know, the angel says, let's go see this Savior. And they go see Jesus at his birth and they're blown away at how God decided to come into this world. And that's the context of that word today. And yet the question that I have for you is this, and I really need you to think about this, gang. And that is, is there any other relevance to this word or this idea of today? In other words, is there any carryover? to our day in this original declaration of today. Can today mean something for you and I that is similar or akin to what it meant to those original shepherds? That's what I need you to wrestle with. Because you see, I think that there is. I think that there is more to this simple word today, or at least to the implications of this simple word today, than you and I might realize at first glance. In fact, here's my main point for you this morning, and I hope this rocks your world, and that is that the today of back then is the same today now. I'm telling you this is true. The today of back then that the shepherds originally heard, I'm going to submit to you, is in many ways the same today now. Now, obviously what I'm not saying here is that the precise literal use of today as found in Luke 2.11 is the same as now because as we just established what the angel meant by today back then was the very night that Jesus was born. So I'm not suggesting that. What I am suggesting, however, is that the same implications of what today meant for those shepherds back then are the precise implications for you and me today. In other words, the force and focus of today, as it was originally announced to the shepherds 2,000 years ago, is the same force and focus that God announces to you and I today. Let me show you what I mean. I want you to consider as we uh, wrap this thing up three things that Jesus' coming into this world meant for the first followers 2,000 years ago. Three extremely life-changing, soul-altering things. But I'm going to put these things in the present tense for you and me now because my point is, is that they're just as much true for you and me today as it was for them back then. And it's all tied to Jesus so here we go. First implication of today is that today he is your sin-forgiving Savior. Just like he was and just like was announced to the original shepherds 2,000 years ago. Remember the verse today. In the city of David is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I would suggest to you that today he is still just as much your sin-forgiving Savior. 
If you don't believe me, I want you to check out how the New Testament would go on to say it later on, literally a few decades later after the, uh, Jesus ascended into heaven. Look at how Peter would put it to his audience that, by the way, is you and I as we read the epistles. He says this, he says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So, so there it is. Uh, Christ died for sins. Do all of you know what that means? Uh, theologians have a fancy word for this. They call it the atonement. It simply means that, that your sin separates you from God. I think we all feel that. We don't come out of the womb with our hands up praising God. We come out of the womb fallen and struggling through this life. And we all live a life of sin and guilt and shame from all the nasty things that we do. And the Bible says that separates us from God. And that's why Jesus came to die for our sins, for our sins to be put upon him. He atoned for our sins. And why did he do that? Don't miss this. So that he might bring us to God, so that we might be forgiven and free from our sin. And when the shepherd initially announced Everyone, sorry, when the angel initially announced to the shepherds back then that there's a Savior today, here's what you guys need to know. That same announcement is being made to all of humanity today, that there's a Savior. His name is Jesus, and he is your sin-forgiving Savior, here to finally free you up from the guilt and shame that you feel so regularly. You know, let me try a little exercise with you right now. In campuses and venues, I need you to, uh, to do this with me as well. I, I, and, I, and I hope all of you participate. You'll see why in a minute it's important you participate. But I want you to raise your hand right now where you sit. If you ever feel guilty about anything, raise your hand. If you ever feel guilty about anything. For those of you who don't have your hand up, psychologists call you a sociopath. It simply means that... <laughs> that you just never feel guilt in your life. And I, I maybe there's some of you that do, and, and, but the reality is most of us feel guilty in our lives about certain things. The second question I want to ask you, and I don't mean to put all of you on the spot here, but just be honest with yourself. Raise your hand if you believe Jesus died for you. Raise your hand. Many of you do. You see, there's a tie, the Bible says, between the guilt that we feel and the death of Jesus Christ on a cross for our sins. And the tie is simply this, that he died to bear your sin upon himself so that you would be forgiven of your sin, freed from your sin, so that you don't have to feel guilt for the rest of your life. Now, now don't get me wrong. The reason I ask all of you to feel guilty now is because we still sin as Christians. We're still fallen. We still struggle. And hopefully your conscience still works. So that when you sin, you feel guilty for what you do. We should all feel that. So whether you sin against your spouse or one of your kids or you lie at work or you, you, you say something to another driver, I mean, all the things that you guys do, when you do those things, you should feel guilty for those things. But here's the difference between us and the world. You don't sit there and wallow in that guilt and shame. You don't go to the bar to drink it off. You don't get online and look at a bunch of porn. You don't try to immerse yourself in materialism. You don't do all the things that our world does. No, what you do is you first John 1, 9 it. You go to God and you confess your sin before him 
And here's what he says. He says, if you confess your sin, he is loving enough to you because of Jesus to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And I don't have time to go into detail on this, but I, I got to tell you, and take this in the right light. If you guys misunderstand this, I'm in trouble. But I've been a Christian for 35 years. I'm almost 53 years old, and I still struggle so much with guilt and shame in my life. Can any of you relate? I, I, I mean, I don't get it. My wife doesn't get it. She says to me, why do you always feel guilty about everything? Like I come on campus here and, you know, something happens and, you know, we get some bad news on something and immediately I, I take it personal. What did I do wrong? I didn't lead well enough. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. Or I come home and Kim's mad at, mad at something and I immediately think, what did I do? You know, and, and some of you guys can relate. Or my, my kids struggle and I think, oh my gosh, wh where do we go wrong as parents? And, and, and you know, I, I just, I'm constantly, constantly feeling guilty. Some of you have the opposite problem. Some of you don't feel guilty enough for your life and that's for another sermon. But, but some of us, have overly active consciences. The Bible actually talks about that, that there's a thing called a weak conscience where you tend to feel guilty over things that maybe you shouldn't even do, you, you haven't done. And, and the reality is, is that I think Jesus came to free us from that. Jesus came, so whether you have an overly active conscience or whether you have a normal conscience or even if you have a hard conscience, he came to die so that we can deal with all of that guilt stuff in our lives. And all I know is that when I'm feeling overly guilty about something, for me, and I've been doing this for 35 years, I will pause, I will stop, I will get along with God. We'll talk about that more in a minute. And when I do that and just say, God, I'm feeling so much shame and guilt for this, and I meditate, I think about what Jesus did for me. I gotta tell you, I have what, what I call these bright moments. What John Ortberg calls these rainbow days, these rainbow moments where all of a sudden the clouds part and the sun shines through. And I realize in a glorious moment, he's forgiven me. I realize that I really am set free and that I don't need to carry this guilt and shame with me. You see, today, he is your sin-forgiving Savior. And it truly has the power, he has the power to set us free. Now, it doesn't stop there, not at all. There's much more to this idea of today as it relates to Jesus. So here is the second thing today meant back then that is just as much true in our day, and that is that today he is your help in times of need. Did you know that? He is your help in times of need. You know, there's one of the most powerful passages in the New Testament that communicates this truth. It's found in the book of Hebrews, verses 14 to 16. And I want to read it for you right now. And as I do, I want you to just do one thing for me. And that's try to link what it says about Jesus to this idea of help. And then we'll talk about it here in a second. It says this. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into the heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So simply link there Jesus with his offer of help. And as you do, I want you to notice, this is rich, I want you to notice the tools that Jesus uses to make this link between himself and the help he gives us. Did you catch it? The tools he uses, as I'm reading it, are empathy, 
grace and mercy. And there's a lot of richness in that gang. In other words, because Jesus was human, fully human, born into this world, just like us, but also because he was divine, fully God, come into this world, he can both understand what it is like to be us because he is human and had the same struggles and difficulties we do, but he can also help us because he is divine, he is God, come into this world. And so Jesus provides both empathy and mercy, understanding and care, because he gets our humanity, but he also provides help because he's God come in the flesh. When you think about it, it's really the best of both worlds bound up in Jesus. And I would submit to you that in this, contained in this, is this recipe for the help that so many of us need when we struggle. That just like the announcements to the, to, the, to the shepherds back then by the angel, that today there is a Savior born for you who is Christ the Lord, the ruling Lord of your life. That's true for you and I today. For we have a Savior who, who can, can empathize with our weaknesses and with our struggles. And as the Bible says there, help us in our time of need today. He is the one who stands ready to help you when you need him most. You know, when I became a Christian 35 years ago, this particular truth that Jesus is my help in times of need became very real to me one day as an early Christian when I was uh, having a conversation with my dad. I've shared before, and my dad's okay with me sharing this, and my dad is a very, very intelligent man. He's a Harvard-educated lawyer, and he's gotten softer in his old age, but especially back then, he was pretty tough spiritually and, 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 and really intellectual, which is a good thing, but, but uh, he didn't have a lot of room for the evangelical faith that I had just found recently in Jesus. And I remember having a conversation with my dad back in the 1980s. I was in college, and we were arguing about some spiritual issue. And i never forget, he, he looked at me at one point in the, in the argument. He said, well, you only believe that because you believe in an interventionist God. And I remember pausing and thinking, I don't think I know what interventionist means because I was a young college student. So I asked him, I said, what do you mean by an interventionist God? He said, well, you believe in a God that intervenes in your life. You believe in a God that, that, that intervenes in the daily world of the people that believe and trust in him. And I thought, yeah, that, that is what I believe, but it doesn't sound like you're saying that's a compliment. I mean, I, I was trying to figure out where he's coming from. So I said to him, well, don't you believe in an interventionist God? And he said, not really. And I was like, wow, my dad believes in God, but doesn't believe he actually breaks through into this world. About three years later, I went on to seminary and did my graduate work in theology in Chicago. And uh, the seminary I went to was a wonderful seminary that taught me a lot of intellectual and practical things about God. And one of the things I learned about was a historical view of God called deism. Some of you are familiar with it, deism. Deism was the theology of Thomas Jefferson, one of the founders of our nation, and, and uh, many professors even now at Oxford and Cambridge and probably at ASU are, are what we call deists because a deist, it's a very scientific view of God. They believe that, that God is somehow behind all that we see in this world, that God does exist, that he is out there somewhere, but that billions of years ago, he sort of started the ball rolling through some activity maybe of creation, but since then has stepped back from this world and never breaks into it. 
So a deist is somebody who believes in God, but doesn't believe that he ever intervenes in the affairs of this world. He is out there, but he's absolutely unknowable. He cannot be experienced in any real way. That's a deist. And I remember studying that, and this was before the days of cell phone and email, so I couldn't call or email my dad, but that summer I came home, and one day we're having breakfast, and I said, I know what you are, Dad. You're a deist. (laughs) And I'll never forget his answer. My dad really is a wonderful man. He said, well, he said, I really don't like labels because labels tend to confine people, and we use them to judge people. He said, but if you are going to give me a label, I would accept that one. And over the years, I think he's changing, which is for another story. So here's my point in telling you that, and and I'm just going to say it straight up, straight forward, so that we're all clear about this. And I don't mean to put any of you on the spot, but you have to see this. You cannot be a believer in Jesus and a deist at the same time. And, And I don't mean to say that to shame you or put you on the spot. Here's why I say that. You can't believe that God broke into this world 2,000 years ago, as a sin-forgiving, helpful Savior, Christ the Lord, and believe that he doesn't want to involve himself in this world. Amen? You can't, those are two mutually exclusive things. It's why most Christians would not accept the worldview of deism, because we believe the opposite. Even before I knew any of these terms, I believe the opposite. We believe that Jesus does break into this world, that he did so 2,000 years ago, and he continues to do so today. He is still in the people helping business. How? Well, he listens to us when we pray. The Bible says he even helps us when we don't know how to pray. And he answers prayers. Maybe not always the way that you want him to. I like how one author said it years ago. He said, Jesus always answers prayer. He either says yes, no, or wait but at least you got an answer. (laughs) And the reality is that he does. Some of you don't believe this today, and it's the only thing you need to hear today. He stands ready to help you in your times of need. I love how the psalmist said it so well. He says, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And Jesus is the one who has been declared Lord, Christ the Lord, who today stands ready to help us. So today he is your sin-forgiving Savior. Today he is your help in times of need. And then notice a third and final implication of the original today that is still going on in our day, and that is that today he is your constant companion. Today, he is your constant companion. And though this might sound very similar to the second point that we just looked at, don't be fooled, gang. It's very distinct and powerful. For the second point we looked at, we simply noted that Jesus helps us in our time of need. But this one, don't miss this, is all about his presence, his constant presence in our lives so that even when he doesn't help us in the way that we think he should help us, I know how some of you think, get this, he says, but I am still with you and that being with you is going to make all the difference. I want you to look at some of the very last words of Jesus. We just looked at some of the first words of the gospel story, Luke 2.11, that we're going to be in for the next four weeks. Uh, Look, now let's skip to the end, at some of the very last words of Jesus. He's about to be ascended into heaven. He's sitting there with the 
12 disciples and 11 disciples at that point, and, and, and he says this. He says, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, I, I want you to think about these words of Jesus with me here. I want, I want you to, to park in front of them for a minute. As I just hinted to, Jesus is about ready to ascend into heaven. Let that sink in. He's about ready to leave the disciples after being with them physically for three years nonstop. And let's be frank about it. He's going to leave them when the real hard part for them is starting. They know this. And you got to believe that at least some of them were thinking, well, this is a shot across the bow, Jesus. I mean, we've left everything for you. Our jobs, our family, our friends, and you're going to get to go up to be with the Father in heaven. And we're stuck here to experience persecution, ridicule, hardship. And the most problematic thing about it is that people aren't going to believe us, which they wouldn't. We're going to tell them you resurrected from the grave, and they're going to say, where? We don't see him. And we're going to say, oh, oh he ascended into heaven. <laughs> and he goes, why don't you stay? Why don't you stay with us and help us in the most difficult mission that anybody ever on earth has been given? And Jesus isn't going to stay. He's going to go up to the Father. But then right at that moment, he says these words to them. Now let this sink in. He says, but don't worry. That's what and lo means. Don't worry. I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. He's saying that even though he is not physically present with the disciples, but ascending back to the Father, that his presence with them, a very real and felt presence, will be with them always throughout the rest of their lives. And by the way, this promise then is true for any follower of Jesus. The New Testament will go on to explode this idea of God's special presence with us in Jesus for anybody that follows him. So today, that idea of his presence with you is still true. Think about that. I, I'm not talking a minute, I'm not talking a minute here how so many of us don't experience or feel his presence with us, but that's very different than the promise that because of your faith in Jesus, he is present with you. There's never a moment in this life, there isn't anything you go through in which he is not with you if you're a believer in Jesus. I love how Thomas Merton said it years ago. He said, as soon as you are really alone, you are with God. See, some of us think when we're really alone that we're really alone. <laughs> some of us think when we're really alone that God is not there. In fact, I've spent a lot of my pastoral work with many of you trying to work that one through, but let's just settle it for right now with the understanding that that's just not true. That through faith in Jesus, he has promised you his presence, a constant companion in and through it all. And that that promise is just as true today as the original today back then. I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, okay, Jamie, I get it, I get it. I mean, you're proving biblically that he is with me, that he's my constant companion. But you might be thinking right now, but I don't feel it. I don't always experience it. In fact, if truth be known, Jamie, I hardly ever experience his presence with me. How do you explain that? And more importantly, how do I 
cross over from just believing that he is present with me to experiencing his presence with me? And, and that's a really good question. And, and I do want to tell you right now, and I know this is going to pop some of your bubbles and some of you won't like this and you might even send me emails on it, but I won't answer you. Uh, there is no, there's no formula for experiencing God's presence. I, I'm convinced of that at, at almost age 53, have been a Christian for 35 years. Many Christians will try to tell you different. They'll, they'll give you a formula. Almost every denomination, every brand of Christian has their formula. Calvinists have the doctrines of grace. Wesleyans have the means of grace. Catholics have the, the sacraments. Even the current whole spiritual formation movement talks about the disciplines and, and their promises. If you just do these things, if you just do them, you're gonna experience God. You're gonna feel God. And don't get me wrong, I'm a big believer in the doctrines of grace and the means of grace and the spiritual disciplines. I am, I'm a big believer in all that. Here's the problem. It's not like a slot machine where you put your quarter in, pull it, and then the three bars line up and you're rich. It doesn't work like that. And it's not even like a candy machine where you put your buck in, pull the thing, and get your candy bar. God never promised it that way. And so it's very possible to believe all the right stuff, to do all the right things, and still find yourself not experiencing or feeling the presence of God with you. There's no formula for doing that. And that's why some authors who really get this <laughs> call the days where you do experience his presence rainbow days or bright moments, or as my mentor Ludd called it years ago, God sightings. Call it whatever you will. But, but they're kind of few and far between because it's not like we walk around constantly feeling the presence of God with us. And if you do, man, bless you. You're like Mother Teresa. But most of us don't have uh, that kind of experience. There's no formula. But here's what I do know, and maybe this will help. And that's that God is God. He is good. He loves you. And that when you do need it the most, he's going to give you a sense of his presence. Can you believe that today? When you need it the most. I, I got to tell you, I, the most moving story of this happened to me a few years back. I was called to the hospital by a couple I had never met, and uh, she was dying. In fact, she wasn't going to leave the hospital. And so they called and said, Pastor, if you're available, would you come? And, and I always can't come because we have such a large church with many requests. But when I can, I will. And so I was, I was heading to Mayo Hospital, and I got there. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. The guy was sitting there in her bed. Her name was Beth. And and, uh, and, and she was about her mid-60s, and she had been diagnosed with metastasized lung cancer, and it was caught very late, and she wasn't going to go home. She was going to go be with the Lord there in that bed, and sure enough, about a week later, she did. And as we sat down and chatted a little bit, I asked her if she was a believer in Christ and all that. She said, absolutely, yes. And then she told me the most amazing story. She said, you know, I'm a, I'm a very driven person. I'm very type A. I'm very, very, very successful in my business. We own a home here and back in the Midwest, and we just, you know, we winter here. And she said, I, I, I'm just, I'm a very anxious person, very high strung. And she said, I've heard you tell stories from the pulpit about people who, when they got really bad news about their health, you know, had this peace from God, you know, that, that passes all understanding. And she goes, I remember sitting there in the pew when you tell stories like that, thinking to myself, that will never be me. I never have peace with anything. I'm always high strung. I, I don't receive news very well. It's quite frankly what made me rather successful because I work hard when I don't get good news and I tend to work it out. She said, but I, I never thought that I'd receive the news of my death very well. And she said, but here I lay in a hospital knowing that I'm going to be with the Lord in about a week. 
And she said, I can't even explain the peace that I have. She said, I can't explain the sense of God's presence that I have. And she said, the reason I can't explain it is because I wasn't expecting it. I've not tried to manufacture it. And I never thought that he'd give me this, but he has. And she said, it just makes all the difference. Guys, if I had a quarter for every story like that, I'd be a rich man. Many of us think God isn't going to come through. But when we need him most, he knows what we need. He gives us what we need. And again, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking right now, well, Jamie, I, I need it now. I want it now. And he's not giving it to me now. I get that. I'm human. Could it be that he still knows better than you do? Could it be that you think you need it now, that you want it now? Now watch this but that he wants you just to be thirsty for him. And in that thirst, I've taught you this before, in that thirst is the experience of God, the longing for God, and that you need to be with that longing. And whether every satiates that thirst or fulfills that longing or gives you this wonderful ecstatic experience of his presence, that's up to him. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. That's the psalmist's experience with God. And maybe that's the experience that he has for you right now. But make no mistake, he knows what you need. And he's committed to filling that need. One of my favorite stories told uh, ever is by my mentor, Larry Crabb. Larry tells a story that when he was a younger man, about my age, his dad was in his 80s. And his dad was just one of these old Plymouth brethren, very faithful, very staunch followers of Jesus. Not very emotional, but just a tough guy who, who always, always, always believed and trusted in Jesus and lived a very, very rigid, disciplined, but loving life. And Larry tells a story that toward the end of his dad's life, he was very sick and ended up in the hospital at one point for about two weeks, and they thought he was gonna, they were going to lose him, but he pulled through. And Larry tells a story that he picked his dad up in the hospital, and he was driving his dad back home, and Larry was in the front seat, and his dad, for health reasons, was sitting in the back. And at one point, Larry looked in the mirror, and he saw his dad with a tear in his eye. And, uh, and he thought, wow, dad must be emotional about something, and he... Uh, he said, Dad, what's up? He said, well, you know, son, he goes, I was in the hospital there for two weeks. And he said, and you visited me and other family members visited me and my friends visited me. And he said, and the whole time I was just crying out to God that he would visit me. He said, I was crying out to God that he would give me a, a deep sense of his presence. And he said, and for two weeks I cried out to him and he said, and he never did. He said, the Lord never visited me in the hospital. And Larry assumed that he was having a tear because of the fact that he was mourning the absence of the presence of God. And then, as Larry tells a story, he was blown away at what came out of his dad next. He said, then my dad said to me, he said, just leave it to God that he loves me so much that he knew he could trust me to be faithful even in the absence of his felt presence. And Larry realized his dad was crying because he realized how much God loved him and was faithful to him to even trust him to be faithful in the midst of that. See, I think some of us 
need to start realizing that that might be what God is doing in us now. We blame him because we don't think he is present with us. Here are two things today. One, he is present with you. If you are a follower of Jesus, I know for a fact he has never left you and he never will. But secondly, that's different from always experiencing or feeling his presence. Don't get me wrong, I want you to. And keep doing the disciplines, keep uh, accessing the means of grace and the doctrines of grace and keep faithful and trusting in him. And you might get those rainbow days, those bright moments. I mean, he does break through, don't ever doubt that. But even when he doesn't, trust today, today, that he knows what he's doing. He knows your life. He knows what you can take and what you can't take. And at the end of the day, he trusts that you'll be faithful back to him, no matter what kind of a static experience you get or you don't get. He is that good to you, but you have to believe. Through faith focused on Jesus, you have to trust that he is your sin-forgiving savior, that he always stands ready to help you, and that he is always with you. And I'm telling you, gang, if you can do that, and you can, you will experience the today of 2,000 years ago, the same today that was announced to the shepherds in Luke 2.11. That day will be yours now. The today of back then is the same today now. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this amazing passage that was announced miraculously by angels to the shepherds 2,000 years ago. And God, we realize right now how relevant this passage is to us today. That when the angel said, today, a Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord, God, that is true for us now. And so, Lord, through faith, through belief, through trust, we grab on to the today. We grab on to Jesus, who is our sin-forgiving Savior, our help in time of need, our constant companion through his presence. And God, even though we just talked about what it means when you don't seem to give us a sense of your presence, God, would you break through into our lives? Would you remind us in subtle and even not so subtle ways, each of us individually, how much we are secure in Christ and cherished through the cross? Would you do that in us, we pray this week. And Lord, may we have a very meaningful Christmas as we focus on the real reason of this season. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.